If a demigod, demon, human being, yaksha, gandharva, or anyone within this universe renders service to the lotus feet of Mukunda, who can deliver liberation, he is actually situated in the most auspicious condition of life, exactly like us, the Mahajanas, headed by Pallada Maharaj. So I was recently in Bali, and there all of the Hindus, when they greet each other, they say, Om Swastu Astu. Om Swasti Astu. Swasti. You have this word, Swasti. May you find, may you have astus, like benediction. May you find auspiciousness. So everybody wants auspiciousness, yes? Does anyone want things to be inauspicious? No? Does anybody wake up in the morning and say, I hope this day is really inauspicious? <laughs> Hope it goes really badly. <laughs> right? We're always wishing that everything will work out favorably. And when people have children, they say, I wish you all success in life. When people get married, may you have success, right? When someone graduates, may you have success, may you have auspiciousness. Someone starts a new job. Everybody wants auspiciousness. Everyone wants to be a success. Everyone wants everything to be glorious. Right? Anybody here want to be a failure? Anybody? So what does this mean to be auspicious? What is this swasti? What is auspiciousness? What is good? What is bad? It's very difficult to tell, actually, what is good and what is bad. Sometimes a person may think something is very good, but it ends up being very bad. I'm sure you've heard about this. Somebody wins the lottery, and they think, oh, this is very good. Now my life is auspicious. And four months later, they say, the worst thing ever happened to me was I won the lottery. Right? You've heard those kind of stories? Their name gets posted in the newspaper and some thief comes and breaks into their house and their relatives become envious and everybody fights over it. Sometimes it's happened when somebody dies and they have a huge inheritance. Right? And then the whole family becomes divided. Nobody talks to each other anymore because they don't like the way the inheritance is split up. So it looks like very auspicious. Oh, our grandfather's, you know, had $4 million in inheritance. But it's not auspicious. 
Or sometimes the people think, oh, I found the perfect life partner. Now my life is going to be auspicious. And it ends up being a living nightmare. Huh? It ends up being the worst thing. So it's like that. You know, you get a new job and you think, oh, now this would be great. And it ends up being horrible. And it works the other way, too. Sometimes you think, oh, this is going to be the worst thing. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid it. It's going to be terrible. And then you do it and it's wonderful. Right? I've had that also, right? You, you have to work with someone and you heard all about them. And, oh, I don't want to work with them. Oh, and you get to know them and they're just the most wonderful person. Right? Or sometimes, you know, you get sick or you get injured and you think, oh, this is most inauspicious, but because you're sick, you meet somebody and that person gives you this opportunity and that opportunity, and it's all auspicious. And that happened to me once. My plane got delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And thinking, oh, this is all inauspicious. Then I ended up having a wonderful hot meal at someone's house, one devotee's house, while I was waiting for the plane. I got rerouted. I ended up on a much better plane with room to lie down on the seat and sleep all the way to India. And I ended up with lots of friends being on the plane. It's like, wow. And then I thought, Krishna, why didn't you just give me this plane in the first place? And then I realized that that flight would have cost about three or four times as much money as the flight I was on that got delayed. So sometimes what appears to be auspicious is inauspicious. And sometimes what appears to be inauspicious is auspicious. And in general, in this material world, we don't have a very good sense of what's good. We really don't know what's good. We talk about karma, but even good karma brings you to another birth in this world. And let's say you're a very charitable person, you know, you give a lot in charity, but by the law of karma, whatever you give in charity, you get back in your next life, at least an equal portion. And if you give to a really worthy person, you get back double or triple or ten times back in your next life. How much charity you've given is the main indicator of how wealthy you're going to be. But then, you know, you have to come back and collect it. Right? So you have, all, you have all this money coming to you by your good karma, and you've got to take it on the birth and collect the money. So is that auspicious or inauspicious? If you have to come back again, uh, just to collect your good karma, whatever it may be. So what is really auspicious? And then another thing you notice is that what appears to be auspicious for one person is often inauspicious for somebody else. Right? So people are sitting at their restaurants and they're eating all this food that's so delicious and they're enjoying the food so much. But because they're eating all this food, some poor animal is suffering their whole life. Yes? You know, there was just this big thing in California whether or not they could sell duck livers. And the way that they produce these special duck livers is they, they prop open the duck's mouth and force feed them. They're horrible. So the poor ducks are suffering, their whole life suffering, and then killed. So one person is having a, a, a meal, oh, very tasty meal, very gourmet meal. And then another living entity is suffering. And we think, oh, this has nothing to do with me, I don't need death privilege. But so much of what we consider auspicious in our life is at the cost of someone else's suffering. I mean, it's hard to think about it. You know, a lot of the glories of Western civilization was built on slavery. You all know that, right? A lot of Western civilization was built on slavery. A lot of the wealth of the Western nations. Or if not outright slavery, exploitation. The destruction of indigenous populations. Without their suffering, there wouldn't have been enjoyment for the other party. 
Or even a lot of, you know, you go to a shop today and, oh, wow, that t-shirt is so cheap. And why is that t-shirt so cheap? Somebody in another part of the world is working without any medical care. They're working without a decent salary. You know, they can hardly buy themselves. Uh, you go to these third world countries and you see people that are working all day and they're so skinny, just muscle. But not like, you know, you go to the gym and you want just muscle. <laughs> well, they're so skinny and they're, all they can eat every day is one piece of bread, a little bit of vegetable. If they get injured on the job, they just get fired. That's the end of that, you know. You see people in these countries, the, the women are doing construction work, but there's no child care, so they have their little infant children next to them. And if the children get hurt, and it's a construction site after all, nobody's wearing hard hats, nobody's wearing covered shoes, there's little tiny babies there. But some rich person comes and moves into the very cheap house. Oh, I got a house so cheap. So most of the time, our auspiciousness is at the cost of someone else's inauspiciousness. Now, this is just the fact. You know, we, we may not like to admit it. We may not like to look at it. But unfortunately, this is a fact. And we may say, well, what can we do? One living entity is food for another. Everyone is enjoying it at the cost of someone else. But even the living entity in this world intentionally takes pleasure at other suffering. And we may think, well, I don't do that. But if we really look honestly, we'll find there's many times that we do that. If someone insults us, if someone cheats us, and then they suffer, we're like, oh, yeah. Or even within the family, sometimes we're arguing with each other, and we intentionally say rude and hurtful words to our family members just so we can win the argument, or just so we can feel we've made our point, and then we're enjoying, oh, yes. And we're finding our auspiciousness at the cost of others. This is the whole principle, of course, of envy. You know, we want to have, you know, we want our neighbors to have a nice house, but not quite as nice as we have. You know, we, we'd like our neighbors to have money, but not quite as much as I have. I want a car that's a little better, and I want, you know, a spouse that's a little more attractive. And I, I want to be a little better than others. So then I'm enjoying at others' suffering. You know, we, we, we're taking pleasure directly, indirectly, intentionally, unintentionally at others' suffering. So is that really auspiciousness? And is it even really auspicious to us? Because whenever we enjoy at the cost of others, we have to pay for it. That the universe is made in a balanced and fair way. Everything becomes balanced. Everything becomes in harmony. We are not really capable as little human beings of skewing the harmony of the universe permanently. You know, we can appear to do it for some time, in some place, but everything will always get balanced. One who does good will get good, one who does evil will get evil. This is the law of karma. So when we get our auspiciousness at the cost of someone else's inauspiciousness, it will come back to us as inauspiciousness. Everything will become balanced. So is that real auspiciousness? Something that's only good for one and not for the other? Or something that's good for one only temporarily? We have to pay for it later. And usually when you pay for things later, you have to pay more, isn't it? Yeah. When you pay up front, you usually pay less than if you pay later. And if you try to avoid paying, that's when you pay the most. If you go someplace and you steal something and you say, well, I'm going to avoid paying, you would have had to work an hour to earn the $20 to pay for it or whatever, half an hour, depending on how well you get paid. 
And then if you steal the thing, then instead of spending half an hour or an hour to get it, you're spending, you know, 20, 30 hours dealing with the court and the lawyers, and then you're spending three days in jail. So you're paying much more than you would have had to pay. So is that auspicious? If we're getting things for which we have to pay later, either willingly or unknowingly, that's not real auspiciousness. And then something that's auspicious is not only good for everybody, but something that's auspicious pleases everybody. A lot of what we think is auspicious and good in this world doesn't really even give us a lot of pleasure. So many of the things that we do for pleasure in this world end up disappointing us. Don't we have this experience? You know, you think, if I eat this food, I'll be happy. If I watch this movie, I'll be happy. If I go to this place, I'll be happy. And we just feel disappointed. We don't feel pleased at all. Or it may please us and not please somebody else. You can say, oh, this is really good food. And someone says, yeah, I don't like this. Or this is a really nice, someone could come here and say, what a beautiful place. And someone would say, it's too quiet. Not exciting. Nothing to do. We have our farm in Hungary with the, there's not even electricity on the farm. So what do you do in the evenings? There's nothing to do. You know, you can light a little candle in your house. The only thing to do is go to the temple and chant. But somebody may come there and say, wow, this is wonderful. Everybody is just chanting. Everybody's engaged in meditation. And somebody else will come and say, you know, where's the pub? Where's the nightclub? There's nothing to do. Just like our God, Brother Vidyananamara said, if you brought an average person to the spiritual world, they'd say, oh, it's a bunch of hard Christians. What do I want to be here for? So something that's really auspicious is pleasing to everyone. It's good for everyone. It pleases everyone. It attracts everyone. Materially, again, we're attracted by different things. Some of us are attracted by the things in ignorance and passion, some in goodness. And one of the most amazing things of that which is auspicious, by the way, this is all according to Srila Prabhupada and Nectar Devotion, talking about how bhakti is all auspicious. One of the most amazing and wonderful things about what's truly auspicious is that it develops all genuine good qualities. And I believe that our struggle with developing good qualities and good character is one of the most frustrating things that we encounter, being an embodied soul. All of us like to think of ourselves as a good person, right? Do we want to think, oh, I'm, I'm just evil and disgusting and horrible? No. I mean, if you really think like that, then you end up having to get on medication or something. We want to think of ourselves, I'm, I'm a good person, I'm, I'm a worthy person, I'm a valuable person. But then we have to face the way that we behave and the way that we think and the way that we feel on a daily basis, which isn't always good and worthy. At least I have that problem. Do we have that problem? That we have like an idealized self. You know, there's my idealized self. Why are you all the way up there? There's the Urmila I would like to be. And then there's the Urmila I have to live with. And there, it's not the same. So I'm sure all of us here are honest, right? I hope we have no thieves here. But is anybody willing to say I'm 100% honest? Anybody? No way. <laughs> I'm not. I haven't met anyone in any audience who will say, I'm 100% honest. But we'd like to think that we're kind. You know, I'm a kind person. I'm a compassionate person. I'm a caring person. I'm not a cruel person. I'm, I'm not a sadist. I don't harm others. 
Are we always kind? Are we always kind to everybody in all circumstances? You know, are we kind to the clerk in the store who's you know, triple charged us and won't give us the money back? I mean, are we really? Are we always kind? Can we always look at the way we behave towards others and say, "Well, I, I feel really proud of that." So there's this difference between who we would like to be, who we like to think of ourselves, and who we are. So something that's really auspicious brings us to who we would like to be, which is, in fact, really who we are. So to understand this, we have to look a little bit at why we have bad qualities. And in fact, when Srila Prabhupada talks about a nectar devotion, what is auspicious, he's, he really goes into depth on this point. And he makes a statement that those who are not, we have here, Bhajan Mukunda China, those who are not worshipping the lotus feet of Mukunda, they have no good qualities. And we read that and we say, well, well, that's not my experience. My experience is there's lots of people, even atheistic people, who have so many good qualities. Isn't this our practical experience? Haven't we met atheists with good qualities? And sometimes the people who are devotees of God don't have such good qualities, right? We met devotees of God who are arrogant and nasty and cheating and dirty. Yes, have you also? Maybe it's ourselves, but anyway, I'm sure we've met. So it doesn't seem to make much sense. And in fact, we even know that there are, there's a heavenly planets for atheists who are good and moral. There's a subterranean heavenly planets. If you're a good moral atheist who follows universal laws, you get to go there. We don't have a conception of God who says, if you believe in me, you go to heaven, and you don't believe in me, you go to hell. Belief in God is not what takes you to, of course, these are material, temporary heavens and hells. But that's not the criteria. The criteria is, do you follow universal law? Are you in balance with what's true and right and just in the universe? So then what does it mean? That only the devotee really has good qualities and no one else does. So again, you notice that we have good qualities up to a point. It's like this is, this is absolute good quality, which the soul has. So, you know, okay, we, we have some good quality. We have some, and then we get to some point where we stop. Something instigates us. I'm honest, I'm honest, I'm honest, I'm honest, I'm honest, I'm honest. But I'm not honest in all circumstances. I'm only honest in some circumstances. Some circumstances trigger me to be dishonest, or some circumstances trigger me to be nasty or cruel instead of kind. And if we examine those circumstances, you'll find they always involve fear. They always involve some kind of threat. I think, oh, if I'm honest in this circumstance, I won't get something that I'll need, or I'll lose something that I'll need. Whether it's a physical thing, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whether it's a position, whether it's somebody liking us, whether it's a relationship, and all of a sudden we think, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I have good qualities in this circumstance, I won't get what I want. I won't get what I need, or I'll lose something that I already have that I need. And where does that fear come from? Why do we have this fear that what I need is based on favorable circumstances, number one, and that number two, in order to make favorable circumstances, I have to do something against universal law. Well, we get this idea from thinking, first of all, that I am this body, I'm a product of this world, and my happiness comes external. My happiness is, is derived from my bodily senses, my happiness is derived from my mind, it's coming in from the outside. I, have to, I, I, don't, I don't own happiness. It's something out there that I have to get. 
And so when the circumstances outside of me are not, doesn't look like I'm going to get it, then I go to Well, I better go and adjust the circumstances. And I better adjust them in any way possible. The ends justifies the means. You know, it's, it's, it's a catastrophe. All of a sudden, my circumstances aren't going to give me what I need to live and to be happy, to be peaceful, to be whatever. I better hurry up and be the doer. And that conception is all false. So one who is Vajra one who is at the lowest speed of Mukunda, uh, doesn't have this. So let's go through each of these auspiciousness at once. So first of all, something that benefits everyone. So materially, you cannot do something that benefits everyone. You build a house, and the little ants that have their house under it, they become homeless. Right? Even if you eat an apple, so the, you're not killing the tree, you're not priming the tree, but there were seeds inside the apple that were meant to be planted and grown, and they didn't get a chance. So materially, you can't do it. Materially, you cannot live in such a way that no one is harmed for your benefit. Even if you live very, very, very lightly. And uh, we as devotees, we try to live as lightly as possible, which is one of the reasons that we're vegetarian. We, we try to, to cause as least harm as possible, but still there's some harm. But if you're fully in Krishna consciousness, then there's no harm for anyone. There's no harm for anyone. If you're fully in Krishna consciousness, then the, the touch of the body of a pure devotee is a benediction. Because the body of a pure devotee becomes saturated with devotional consciousness. We were talking about yesterday, that our body is also Krishna's energy. One who realizes that, one who's acting like that. Right? When they eat the apple, the apple tree gets benefited. When they offer the apple to Krishna, the whole apple tree gets benefited. The apple tree doesn't have a loss. If they accidentally step on an ant, the ant gets benefited by the touch of their feet. Everything they do benefits everyone. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? One who's actually in spiritual consciousness, they harm no one. They don't take anything from the balance of life. We call this akarma. They're doing activity that doesn't produce any kind of good or bad reaction. They can give charity without having to collect the money because they're giving it on behalf of Krishna. They're saying, oh, here's some of Krishna's money for you. They're not thinking, I'm giving my money. And I'm going to get something back. Everything they do benefits everyone. Benefits themselves and benefits everyone. And such a person perceives and experiences everything that happens to them as auspicious. Everything that happens to them is good because everything is the will of God who is Surudamasara Bhutana, who is everyone's friend. It may not be auspicious on the material platform, but they're not living on the material platform. And they see that everything is auspicious on the spiritual platform. So they experience their whole life as auspicious. There's a nice statement in Krishna book, chapter 20, where Prabhupada says, the materialists see the world as very aggressive, but to the devotee, everything is happily situated. So one who has this consciousness that Krishna is everywhere, that Krishna is in every atom. In every atom there is Krishna, and the whole universe is within Krishna. My body is made of Krishna's energy, and my mind is made of Krishna's energy, and I'm Krishna's energy, and Krishna's everything. And he's my best friend, and everything is already perfect. I don't need to do anything to make anything perfect. It's already perfect. 
So to such a person, everything is full of joy. Brahma Buddha Prasanatma. One becomes filled with joy, expansive, and anandam bhudivarana, without some limit. Expansive joy in all circumstances, whether you get a wonderful meal, whether you get a simple meal, whether people are nice to you, people insult you, one is full of this joy, which is coming from within, kind of like a spring that just keeps flowing from within. And everyone that such a person interacts with is also benefited. And this Bhajan Mukundacharana is actually pleasing to everyone. Here is mentioned Deva Surva Yusya Vayaksha Matava Ekava. So the Bhagavatam tells us about a more species of life than we just see on this planet. The Bhagavatam tells us that all of the planets and stars in the universe are inhabited, that there's no uninhabited moving, heavenly body. And they're inhabited with different beings. And here are some of the beings, the devas. The devas, these are celestial beings that the Jews and Muslims and Christians call the angels. The higher celestial beings. They have bodies made more of light and air. And then there's the asuras. So the asuras are human-like beings who live on lower planets. Often they have great mystic powers. And they, they often tend to be very materialistic. Then the yakshas, which are a more subtle kind of materialistic being. And the gantarvas, which are like semi-demigods. They're somewhere between human beings and the great devas. And the gantarvas are especially famous for being expert at music and dancing. Perhaps because sometimes people see gantarvas, they have this idea of angels playing harps and having musical concerts. Because that's the kind of thing that the Gantarvas and the Apsaras do. So this is pleasing and attractive to everyone. Even materialistic people will be pleased and attracted by Krishna. He's the most pleasing. Why is he the most pleasing? He's Akila Rasamita Murti. He's the form of all tastes. He's the form of all tastes. Everything. Not only joy and humor and kindness and chivalry and charity, but he's also the form of the sweetness of anger and fear and ghastliness. There's some sweetness in those things. Otherwise, people wouldn't pay money to see scary movies and sad movies and ghastly movies. There's some enjoyment in those things. And he is the personification of the enjoying principle of everything. Even people who are attracted to enjoying out of fear and anger and ghastliness, they'll find that in perfection in Krishna. And you want to hear something really amazing? So we talk about how Krishna, right, he's, he's the form of all of these rasas and all of these tastes, all of these pleasures. So Krishna has relationships with billions and 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 billions of jivas, of living beings, simultaneously. Yes, we all suffer. And with each of these living beings, Krishna is enjoying a particular mix of these tastes. A particular mix of neutrality, servitorship, parental, friendship, conjugal, and humor, anger, fear, wonder, chivalry, which includes charity, religiousness, and ghastliness. He's enjoying a particular mixture of these tastes 
along with all of the anubhavas, all of the expression of these tastes, along with the vaichari bhavas, which are different waves of various emotions, and the sattvika bhavas, which are the involuntary emotions, and he's enjoying all of these simultaneously, in all different flavors, with billions and billions of living How much pleasure is in Krishna? How much variety, any mixture of pleasure, any mixture of experience, any mixture of taste is all being enjoyed by the Lord simultaneously with an infinite variety of living beings who are all reciprocating with him. So there's something there to attract everyone. If you're attracted by ghastliness, you can worship Prophet as a sin today. It's pretty ghastly. So everything is not like materially where some things are pleasing to one person and other things are pleasing to another person. But Krishna has everything. So even if you have the, whatever your particular taste, it's there. And as far as developing all good qualities, one one takes shelter at the lotus feet of Krishna. Bhajanukhandachana. Abhayachana not There's no fear. Fear is gone. I mean, there's the rasa of, of fear, but that's not material fear. That's just exciting. But all material fear is gone. Why? We, we don't die. We're eternal. And we can't be hurt by anything. We can't be hurt by wind or water or soul. Well, if I can't be hurt by anything and I'm eternal, is there anything to be afraid of? When one realizes, I am an eternal soul. Bhakti Vigyan Swami tells the story that when he joined the Hare Krishna movement in the former Soviet Union, it was very dangerous to be a Hare Krishna. It was very dangerous to be any religious person of any religion. I mean, it was really quite dangerous. If you had a meeting of three or four people in your house and you were saying some prayers, it doesn't matter from, you know, Bible, Quran, the biggest, the government would have hired thugs that would come to your home and beat your face to break the bones of your face and then throw you in jail without medical treatment. That's pretty scary. You know, we had, we had horrible things done to our devotees in the, in the former USSR. So when Bhaktivedanta Swami wanted to become a devotee, it, he was a, a doctoral student at the time, going for his PhD in biochemistry. And the KGB came and threatened him. You know, we heard that you're starting to join some Eastern group and some religion, and you better not do this, or you're going to be in trouble. And he was afraid. And he was thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do this. And then he was talking to the devotees, he was talking to one of the ladies, and he said she was very short, very short and very small, very a tiny little body, very petite. And she looked at him and she said, why are you afraid? You're not this body. Nobody can hurt you. And he said, all of a sudden, he was just filled with courage. And he thought, if this tiny little lady can be so courageous, what's wrong with me? And he was just filled with peace. So when one is filled with peace, then there's no tipping point for our great qualities. We don't get, you know, we're not honest, honest, honest. Oops! Oops! What about me? Oh, we just there's no what about me because I'm always taken care of. And that's why we say that people who are materialistic really don't have good qualities. Really all they have is self-preservation. Until we're perfectly self-realized, 
Our only real quality is self-preservation and fear. And we'll act nice if we feel that that will help our self-preservation, and as soon as acting nicely won't help our self-preservation, we don't act nicely anymore. That means, are we really nice? So depending on your mode of nature, people in the mode of ignorance, they have a really low tipping point. You notice that? You just like touch them and they blow up. It's on a hair trigger. You know, and as you move up through the modes of ignorance, passion, and goodness, your ability to have good character and not go into fear gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. So we see as we advance in Krishna consciousness, what will have us lose our tolerance and good qualities becomes more and more and more difficult, right? We're able to keep our good character under more and more and more difficult situations. But when we fully become Krishna conscious and we fully have Bhajana Kundachana, then we have all good qualities. So this is what's meant by swasti. This is what's meant by auspiciousness. It's good for everyone. No one is harmed by it. It's not only good for some at the cost of others. It has something for everyone. It's something that's pleasing to everyone. There's no one who comes to Krishna and says, oh, nothing I want there. And it makes us be the kind of persons we really want to be. It makes us be who we actually are. It awakens who we really are. You say, oh, all right. Yeah, okay, great, sure, wonderful. All this nice theoretical philosophy. Now, how do we do it practically? Prahlad says, just like, just like, what's that saying me? He's saying, vayam, mean us. Just like we do. So he's saying to his friends, just like me and my friends, just like me and the other people, look at us, look at our example. So some of my godbrother, god sisters, Gopamrita Pala, Mubhakriti, they asked Srila Prabhupada many years ago. They said, Srila Prabhupada, how do we teach and preach Krishna consciousness? Prabhupada said, you invite someone to your house, let them live there for three days, and then say, you live the way I am living. So there has to be practical examples. Yatavayam. We have to be able to say, like we're doing. Like we're doing. First of all, all of us, we need practical examples. Therefore, the great souls, they come to this world, like Shri Prabhupada, to set an example. What does it mean to have an auspicious life? We have the examples of the persons in the scriptures that we can read about, and we have examples of people walking around on the planet. And we certainly have in our Hare Krishna movement many such examples. I don't think we can say every single person who claims to be a member of the Hare Krishna movement is such an example. That would be pretty nice, but I don't think we can say that. But we certainly have many examples in our Hare Krishna movement of people who personify this. You can say, oh, like that, like that, like that. There's the model. And there's many different models because we're all individuals. So we're not all going to take up Krishna consciousness exactly the way Prahlad Maharaj did, or exactly the way Haridas Thakur did, or exactly the way Bhakti Siddhanta did, or even exactly the way Shri Prabhupada did, because we're all individuals. But we have all of these examples. Oh, like that. That's what it means to have all good qualities because you're fearless. That's what it means to be absorbed in attachment, Maya Shaktamana Prata, for Krishna so that you actually have all this full satisfaction intellectually, emotionally, everywhere. Oh, that's what it means. To be an agent of Krishna so that everyone you interact with is benefited and not harmed. That's really lightly living. 
So we need to look for those examples and become encouraged by those examples and follow those examples. Not imitate, again, because we're all individuals, but follow those examples. And then perhaps the most challenging thing in this class is that we all have to become those examples. First of all, for our own happiness, we shouldn't remain something theoretical that we're not tasting, that we're not experiencing. This Krishna consciousness should not be our belief system. You know, I didn't come to this movement to join a particular religion or to change religions. I have no interest in that. We're, we're, this is not just, a, oh, this is our belief, this is our religion. But it should be something we're experiencing. And we should come to the point where we can say, like Prabhupada Maharaj, like me. If you want your life to be all auspicious, then worship the lotus feet of Mukunda, and then you'll experience auspiciousness like I am. We should come to the point that we can say that that we can say, if you want to see an example, look at me. Look at all these examples. Look at all of us who are an example. Wouldn't that be nice? Just imagine. To have a society where anyone who comes and we can say, oh, you want an example of auspiciousness? Look at us. Our lives are full of auspiciousness. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions. Yes? Um, could you tell me the meaning of Mukunda? Mukunda. So Mukunda deals with mukti, which is how it's being talked about here, the lotus feet of Mukunda who can give liberation. So that Krishna gives liberation from all of the illusion, from the illusion that I'm this body, from the illusion that I'm suffering, from the illusion that I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm brown, I'm green, I'm purple, I'm old, I'm young, I'm Australian, I'm New Zealand, I'm whatever. Gives liberation from all of those illusions. And Mukunda can also mean one who has a very smiling face like a Kundafa. Is a kind of flower that looks like it's smiling. Is that right? Yeah, it's cool. Anybody else? Yes. Um, if I understand, stood you correctly, um, one could see himself is not on the level that you would like to be. You need to improve your auspicious qualities. So, and you were saying that we should have examples to learn yes. how to come to but uh, could you explain a little more sometimes a little difficult just by being with a person who has those qualities first of all it's not so easy sometimes always to be in their presence and mm. second how is it sometimes you need their presence and you just have a flow and you come even discouraged sometimes mm. because too much, or um, you cannot apply it to you, or th things like that happen. Mm -hmm. So, could is it what's what's the? Well, we we don't have to always be in the presence of such persons, nor can we do some sort of a copy paste from how another person surrenders to Krishna and how I surrender to Krishna. But we can get the principle. We can see the principle in this person, and we don't have to be in their presence. I, I have, uh, there's one devotee I know who went through a great difficulty and basically lost all of the things in life that I'm afraid of losing. So there's someone who's experienced a life that personifies my own fears. But this person is fixed in Krishna consciousness and is very happy. And in spite of having experienced a life where he encountered everything that I'm most afraid of, he has no lack in his life, and he's very happy. 
So I very rarely see this person. I mean, I see this person once every few years, even for five minutes. But just that I can remember. Here's somebody that, that had to face in life all the things that I'm most afraid of. And is still happy. And is still going on in spiritual life. And still has everything that's most important to me. And that gives me the courage. Because the opposite of fear, what's the opposite of fear? Right. Opposites. Hmm? Right. To be to have bravery, to have courage. Another opposite of fear might be peace. So I, I, then it gives me peace. Then when then when I hit one of those points of of fear, where I'm likely to jettison all my proper behavior, just thinking of that example is very helpful. You know, something happens in life, and I think, oh, this stuff is threatened. Oh wait a minute. That person actually wasn't just threatened. They actually lost it. They actually was taken away from them. And they're okay. Even if this does get taken away from me, even if this is a genuine threat and I lose it, it, it doesn't matter. So in that way, you can take the examples. That they're fixed in this yogic shame of Ahamiha. That Krishna says, I'm taking care of you. You don't, you don't have anything to worry about. Don't worry about what you have, protecting what you have, getting what you, which, which you don't yet have. Be fixed in the self. And we just think of people like that. You think about Jiva Prabhupada. Prabhupada had his, Prabhupada had his, what was it, a thousand page written manuscript stolen? Something like that. If you wrote a book by hand, a thousand pages, and it was stolen, would you write it again? I probably wouldn't. I'd say, oh, Krishna's arrangement is not meant to be written. Mm-hmm. The prophet said, I am not a man to be discouraged. Find some example. Does that make some sense? Anybody else? Yes? So as you mentioned yesterday, well, uh, Krishna consciousness is not that just on Shanti. On no, no, no. Well, you can be if you want to just merge into the Brahman. So, yeah, and um, where's that final line between uh, spiritual and uh, material anxieties? Oh, what's spiritual material? Spiritual anxiety, spiritual fear, spiritual ghastliness, spiritual anger. It's all coming out from love for Krishna. It's just an expression of love and it's just exciting. It's just exciting and it's sweet. You can tell the difference because when you're trying to enjoy these things materially, and by the way, whenever we experience them, it's because we're trying to enjoy them. But whenever you're trying to enjoy these things materially, you don't really feel very happy. So if you're trying to enjoy material fear, it doesn't, it's not also joyful. It's sort of constricting. And it induces you to do things that you regret later, or even that you regret at that moment. Whereas spiritual anxiety, spiritual fear, it's expansive joy, it's just a different variety of expansive joy and induces you to do wonderful things. 
that you can take pleasure in and everyone else takes pleasure. Pratyakshavagavandharma, what does Krishna say? Rajagrija Rajagriya, Pavitram Idamutamam, Pratyakshavagavandharma, Susukam Pratyamadhyam. How can you tell what's spiritual and what's material? So, first of all, it's Dharma, it's who you are, it's your own nature, it's very authentic. It's Dharma. Like, can you tell the difference between a mango you kick off one of the trees here at New Govardhan and you take it and squeeze it and make it into juice and some mango-flavored water they serve you on the airplane? Can you tell the difference? Do they serve chemical juice here in Australia? Do they have that? You can buy that. Can you tell the difference? So, first thing is spiritual is authentic. It's real. It's purifying. Makes you feel purified. Makes you feel clean. Makes you feel like the mode of goodness, all the senses are illumined by knowledge. Makes you feel like you're taking a bath in brilliant golden light. That everything's everything's shining and full of light. You directly see there's the dharma. So sukham. It gives you all a kind of happiness. Different flavors of happiness. You know, there's strawberry ice cream, there's mango ice cream, there's so different flavors of happiness. So that's your ultimate test. It has to be, of course, within Sadhu Shastra Guru, or forget about it, don't even consider it. So first it's got to be within the realm of the Shastra and the Acharyas. And then what is your practical experience? Like Prabhupada said, you, you don't have to ask anyone else, am I satisfied by eating? You experience yourself. Mars, do you have anything that you'd like to add at all? Thank you very much for coming. Can you listen? Thank you for uh, blessing our assembly. Srila Prabhupada Gita.